Hey, good morning, everyone. My name is Ben. Welcome to Four Corners. A special, special welcome to all of our guests in the room. You heard Pastor Will talk about the Connect card and the Engage box. But if you're our guest, name and email. And in fact, if you give us your home address, what we'll do is we'll send you some free Chick-fil-A. A special word to our guests today. It's a great season to be around Four Corners Church because you're going to get a chance to watch us walk through something that historically sometimes churches don't do very well. If you're a member, if you serve on our kids team, if you have a kid that you check into our kids ministry, you know that we're going through a staff transition. So this is a little bit of family business right now. Um, you're going to get an update, those three categories from our church board um, to whom I'm accountable. You're going to get an update from them this week, and then you're going to get a chance as well to hear from me and the staff over the next few weeks. We have a member meeting in about a month, and so we'll talk about those things, but uh, really, really proud of our church, the comments, the questions, the feedback that you've given. You're honoring, you cl you're, you're demonstrating that you're on point and the mission is important to you. Those are always welcomed. And so if you're wondering what's going on and if we're going to talk about it today, that's the entire thing we're going to talk about. Um, if you are our guest, again, please lean in, watch us, see how we do this. And honestly, if we don't do it well, you don't want to be here. And if we do, since no church is perfect, you may want to lean in. We'd love to have you be a part of us, all right? Hey, we're, begin we're continuing our uh, ser sermon series called Seven, Seven Churches of Asia. And I'm going to take you today to a church in ancient Turkey. The church is called Smyrna, Smyrna. The church is Smyrna. It's modern-day Turkey, the city of Izmir, Izmir. So you can go there today, and you can visit the ancient ruins. And when you look at them, they're more than just archaeological curiosities. Those ancient ruins that you can visit today tell a story. They tell a story about a vibrant city, a city that was very, very influential in the ancient world. It's a city that had a church in it, that church had a local pastor that was put in position by a guy that you've heard of if you've been around church for any length of time. His name is John. He was one of the 12 apostles, and he was a major leader in the Christian church. And he had specific responsibility over what we now call Asia Minor, but it was Asia back in the day around Turkey. And it was part of the Roman Empire. And there were seven specific cities, each one having kind of a church and a leader, that John is going to write letters dictated to him by Jesus. And we find those letters in our book of the Bible called Revelation chapter 2. If you want to go there, you can go ahead and get it in a line. But what I want to tell you about that city is that it had such an important role to play in the development of the early church. But the reason it was so important and the reason it was so influential wasn't for all the reasons that might naturally come to mind. If I were to ask you today what makes a, a person or an institution important, what makes it influential, if I were to ask you that today, you might come up with a list. You know, they, they have a large network. Maybe they have a large net worth, right? Uh, maybe they have profound skills. Maybe they have a huge platform. There's a lot of reasons. But the, the church at Smyrna was important for something that most of us don't really look at and go, wow, that's, that's noteworthy. That's praiseworthy. That brings gravitas to the impact of this place. And before we go there, I want to tell you about one of its most famous residents. One of the most famous residents uh, in, in Smyrna in the Christian world is a gentleman by the name of Polycarp. Some of you may have heard of Polycarp. He he was actually a disciple of the disciple John. John, after Jesus passed on in death on the cross and was resurrected from the tomb and went to heaven, the disciples carried on the work of Jesus. They took the words of Jesus seriously when he said, go into all the world, make disciples and baptize them and teach them to obey and I'll be with you. That, by the way, is the key phrase for today. Jesus saying to his disciples, I'll be with you. So John goes on and does what Jesus tells him to do. And along the way, he meets this young man named Polycarp. And Polycarp was bright. He responded to the gospel of Jesus. He submitted himself to the discipline of learning at John's feet, an eyewitness of Jesus. And when John was given responsibility over those churches of what we now call Asia Minor, he looked at Polycarp at one point and said, you need to be the bishop of Smyrna. You need to be the one in charge. And so Polycarp did that. 
But in a time when the church was under severe persecution, to just be a Christian puts you at odds with Rome. Rome had a slogan, and it was kind of enshrined in their values, and it different points in its history, it would take prominence or maybe recede to the background. And here was the slogan. It might sound vaguely familiar. It went like this. Caesar is Lord. And you could go to Roma in Rome, and you could go to the temple built to honor the Caesar. And because he had supreme power, some of them at least, because they had supreme power, they were seen almost to be deity. And they were, in fact, worshipped. There would be statues of the current Caesar there, and people would come and bring their gifts, their offerings, and they would burn them in front of the statue. They'd make prayers. And the idea was, minimally, if this guy is so powerful, he was normal, except if you're a Christian. Because for Christians, there's only one Lord and one Savior, and his name is Jesus And a Christian in the early church could not declare that Caesar was Lord. In fact, the easiest way to vet whether or not somebody was a Christian or a true, valid Roman citizen, those were seen as diametrically opposed, is you simply get them to declare whether or not Caesar is Lord. So at different seasons in the Roman history, there'd be a knock on the door in the middle of the night. There'd be Roman guards. You are suspected of conspiring against the empire as a member of the underground cult, the Christians, who, by the way, eat human flesh and drink human blood. That's what it was said of the Christians. You know why? Because we take communion. This is my body. This is my blood. They, they have no allegiance to Rome because in their services, it's declared that Jesus is Lord. So here we are. We can go away tonight, and you and your family can be safe. All you have to declare is, Caesar is Lord. And many wouldn't do it. They'd be brought out into the streets, beaten, or they'd grab one of the kids and beat the kid and hope that the parents would. It didn't really work for the Roman agenda. In fact, it made the church stronger and stronger and stronger. And that's what happened at Smyrna. Polycarp, who's leading... The, uh, the church there. At one point in about AD 50, uh, 155, he's pulled away from his role of serving and he's brought to Rome. And he stands trial for leading insurrection against the Roman government. And they tie him to a stake and they say, you're an old man. You're an old man. He's at least 86 years old, perhaps older He's an old man. They say, for the sake of your age and for your dignity, just just declare Caesar is Lord. And Polycarp says, for 86 years, he has never failed me. How can I ever blaspheme my king? And when he said my king, they had all that they needed. And they lit the little stakes, the sticks underneath the stake, and Polycarp was burned at the stake. And it's said, we don't know, nobody was there, but it was written from eyewitnesses that he did not screech or yell. He stood there with dignity and poise, looking up to heaven, praying for the people who were persecuting him. That's some of the history of the church at Smyrna. And it makes the words we're about to read right now extra special. And it gives us a chance to think about why the next 20 chapters of the book of Revelation are written the way they are, where there is a cosmic war between the forces of God and the forces of their enemy. There's a war for the the earth itself. There's a war for, for the inhabitants of the earth, God's greatest creation, humanity, us. And there's a war for some ultimate battle between Right and wrong, light and dark, God and evil. And it's described with vivid color. Sometimes people ask me, Ben, when are we going to get to that stuff in the book of Revelation? And I have opinions about all that, and we'll touch on some of that over the next few weeks as we look at chapter 2 and 3. But here's what I would say right now today we're going to discover with the Smyrna church. If you were to ask the church at Smyrna, when does the great tribulation begin? Back in the day, they'd have said, what do you mean? We're in it right now. We're going through it right now. 
Like, people are literally getting their heads chopped off. Literally. If you were to ask the church at Smyrna, historically, when has great tribulation fallen upon the church? One of those things that the book of Revelation talks about and people argue about. When it's, they just said, there's never really been a day. It hasn't been true for us. In fact, you could go to places in the world right now. And if you were to ask Christians today, when do you see the great tribulation that the Bible talks about, it's hinted at in Revelation, happening? They'd say, what do you mean? We're in it right now. Like the, in detail, the images in the book of Revelation, that's our reality. We live in America. I'm assuming most of you, unless you're a guest, if you are, welcome to our country. We hope you enjoy it. But most of us live in America, and the idea of persecution and tribulation, it's, it's a little foreign to most of us. It's been foreign to me most of my ministry. I've been doing this for 30 years. And, but a few years ago, I got up close and personal to some of it. It's 2009, and I get a phone call from a high school friend telling me about a mutual high school friend who happened to live literally on my block. We literally played Atari 2600 together almost every day. And touch football that typically turned to tackle, which typically turned to a fight, and you were mad for a day, and you went back the next day and did it all over again. This is the guy we played with, and uh, he and I went on spring break to Daytona Beach in 1987 together in high school. That's all I'm going to tell about that story. He was a dear friend of mine, and we get a phone call. I get a phone call about Chris. It's 2009. Our church has been going, and Chris had been a, a missionary in Mauritania. And in fact, Jill and I had been supporting him and his wife as they ran a little education center in the middle of the town for women who were getting out of prison for serious crimes like uh, not respecting uh, authority, looking a man in the eye, going out with their um, ankles and elbows and, uh, and wrists showing, literally. I'm not trying to be, so that's why they were in jail. So they'd get out, and many of them had been divorced, you know, cast away from their husbands, and they had no skills. So Chris set up a little computer shop to teach them how to type, a little sewing shop to teach them how to sew, and gave them the ability to earn some money. And by the way, while he did that sort of thing, he talked to them about you-know-who. The problem with Mauritania is, is you're not allowed to do that. But Chris did it. He did it a lot. And women's lives were changed. Entire families were changed. It, it, they had the fastest internet connection in all of that country. And they were given awards by local government for their educational programs and rehabilitation. But at the end of the day, Chris talked about Jesus. So I get this phone call, and a buddy of mine who we used to hang out with says, did you hear about Chris? And I said, no. He said, yesterday Chris was shot and killed in the streets of Mauritania. It's like, no way. He's like, yeah, it's all over CNN. So sure enough, I go, Google it. There he is. There's a picture of my buddy laying there with a blanket over him. But I know him. I can tell it's him. And he was coming out of his learning center, and some ex extremists decided they were done with him talking about Jesus. And they put him down. And over the next month or so, as his family made its way back, and they worked with the government to get the body, I remember going to the funeral in my hometown and coming face to face with modern persecution. Ever since then, it's been one of those things I've paid attention to. I don't know if you know this or not, but we have brothers and sisters around the globe today that are going through incredible pain. I'll name some countries. Iran, Iraq, Syria, in China, there's some places where Christianity, in fact, it's said in 20 years, there'll be more Christians in China than there are in the U.S. That's good news for the world. But in many places of China, to just simply own a Bible is illegal. China, just in the last year, has burned down 48 churches just because they're churches. Yeah, around the world today, there's persecution. And the words of Revelation chapter 2 to the church at Smyrna speak not just to this church, to what happens to its leader Polycarp in the future right after these words are read, written, but they speak literally to the Christian church today. And those of us in America, while we're not maybe experientially going through the same stuff our brothers and sisters are, 
But on some level, you're going to be able to relate to this, even though our experience isn't quite as extreme. So Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. Here we go. <clears throat> to the angel of the church in Smyrna write. Now, we've discovered that John is on the island of Patmos. I believe, I believe, I believe I have a map. Um, guys, do I have that map from the area? Yeah. Oh, I saw it on the bottom of the screen there, maybe. Uh, there we go. So what we're looking at is city number two. Last week we talked about Ephesus. And you can see on the typical mail route, uh, as the Roman Empire is communicating to its provinces to the east, you would go to Ephesus and then up to Smyrna. Smyrna had an interesting history. In the year 600 B.C., it was burned to the ground. It sits on a bit of a hill, and so there were charred remains for several hundred years. But in 290 B.C., the city was rebuilt, more beautiful than ever, and all the buildings that faced the sea were covered with marble. In fact, if the sun would hit just right, if you were on a boat in the Mediterranean Sea or the Aegean Sea, if the sun would hit just right, it would sparkle off those buildings in Smyrna, and it, from 290 on, it shined very bright like a, here's a phrase, city on a hill, lit well. And the nickname for the city of Smyrna was the city that had died but been raised to life again. It was the city that had come back to life. And to live there was uh, a significant privilege and honor. It was part of the major trade route, the communication route, the flow of money from east to west. And Jesus writes a letter through John and says, give it to the messenger, to the minister, to the angel, that's what the word angel means, angelos in Greek, the language of the New Testament, give this message to them. And then here's what Jesus says to the church. These are the words of him who is the first and the last. In every one of the letters, Jesus gives us a picture of him. In this particular letter, Jesus says, I'm the first and the last. The first in, a, in another place in the, in the book of Revelation, he tells us in a little bit more dramatic way. He's the alpha, that's the first letter of the Greek alphabet, and he's the omega, the last letter. So he is all of it. He was there at creation, and he'll be there at the end. He's the first and the last. So Jesus has the scope of all human experience before him at all time. And then he says the phrase that would have resonated with the citizens of the church of Smyrna, who died and came to life again. He's clearly talking about his own death and resurrection, but he's connecting with his audience. Here's what he says. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. Now, the word there, afflictions, is a great word. The church of Smyrna was going through it. Their leader, John, at this point is on the island, and Polycarp is starting to step to the forefront. Nobody knows that in just a few years, John's actually going to be dead, and Polycarp's going to be the leader. But they have an early indicator that they're in a unique season. Their leader is being persecuted. And John writes the words of Jesus to the church, I know your afflictions. I know what you're going through. The word afflictions here, if you, there, there are a lot of ways to kind of nuance the Greek here. It's a great word. I always get concerned when pastors have much better words than the translator committees that put our Bibles together. Afflictions is a great word, but there's a good word image here as well. I know how you've been crushed. Afflictions hint back to some of the Roman practice of how they would treat prisoners and how they would try to elicit truth from people. They would put stones on them and weight them down. And then they'd ask you some questions. And if you didn't respond, they'd add another stone. And the same word used to describe that process of crushing is connected to our word affliction. So Jesus is saying, I'm watching you. And I'm watching you and I know how you're being pressed. I know how you're being afflicted. And I see your poverty. Like, you don't have a lot of money. You're in this incredibly wealthy city, and you don't have the same that everybody else has. In fact, 
likely that compared to even other churches, these were just not wealthy people. And you'll discover that in the Christian church historically, the Christian church has thrived when these two conditions exist. It's thrived when there's persecution and when people don't have a lot of material goods. And it's been surmised that the reason for that is, is that when you are in a rough situation and you can't buy your way out of it, you learn how to depend on Jesus pretty good. So this church had a vibrant connection to Jesus. They didn't have all the natural things that make life easier. They just, they were in the thick of it. And what's really cool here, just at the beginning, like if you're listening for like, what would Jesus say to me through this passage? Which is always a great thing to ask if you're in a church. What would Jesus say to me? Is Jesus is reminding his disciples in Smyrna and us that when he told his disciples back in Matthew chapter 28, right up here on the board, therefore go and make disciples, baptize them, teach people to obey what I tell them to obey. And then he said, and I'll be with you. When Jesus says to the church at Smyrna, I know your afflictions and your poverty, he's basically saying, I haven't forgotten you. I see you. I know what you're going through. There's never been a moment you went through any of it that you were alone. I'm watching. I know. When you're going through it, whatever it is, pick your it. And if you're not going through it now, good for you. Somebody sitting next to you might be. The good news is, is you're not going through it. The bad news, at some point you probably will. And when you're going through it, it's real comfort if you'll pause and think and remember that Jesus promised every one of his disciples that no matter what you're going through, you will never be alone. Never, never, never. You will never be alone. It's never going to happen. He sees it all. Last week, Jesus told the Ephesian church, I know your deeds. He was reminding them, I see it. I'm around. I pay attention. Every word spoken in private, I hear it. Every time somebody speaks about you, I know what's said. Every time you sit to plan, I'm there. And it's inviting us to acknowledge and to behave and to think as if Jesus is physically present with us through all of our it, whatever it is, which means he's there in your parenting it. He's there. He's there. He's there when the kid won't sleep at night and you're just stressed and tired and you don't know what to do and you're trying it all. My typical mode of operation when my kids wouldn't sleep and I was kind of doing watches, I'd go wake Jill up and go, I can't fix them. Would you just do something with them? Right? That, that seems small, right? Until you do it night after night after night. And so like my highest compassion index rises often for the moms of preschool kids in our church who... Just, there's no escape. And you're not supposed to be glad that school starts, but you might be a little bit. And I just want to give you permission to enjoy it a little bit. It's okay. Or you're going through a marriage it. And you never stood before God and people and said, this is what I wanted it to look like, but here you are. It's good to remember that Jesus knows. And he's there. Or you go through a medical it. And you got news you never wanted to hear. Maybe you were a little afraid it was coming. And sure enough, the doctor confirms your worst fear. And you're in an it. You've never been in an it that Jesus wasn't with you. And the words he's going to give to the church at Smyrna are not just for the church at Smyrna in some historical context. Although they are, they are for all of us today. And they tell us what Jesus values and what's important to him. I know your afflictions, and I know your poverty. I know what you lack. I know what you lack. Have you ever had an I just can't even moment? Like there's something going on, and I just can't even, which is shorthand for I can't even. That's what that means. <laughs> I don't even know what to do. I don't have what it takes to do the thing that I'm at. Jesus says, I know your press. And I know your lack that makes it impossible for you by your own strength to do the thing you want to get done, that needs to get done, that's important. He knows it. And then he says, but look here, yet you are rich. You're rich. 
Somehow, the Smyrna church had been able to be pressed and broke and rich. I want to tell you, that's something that's not possible just for them. This is the possibility for every follower of Jesus. And maybe it's not money, money, but whatever you lack that you don't have, it's still possible to be rich in it because Jesus is with you. Whatever press you're going through, it's still possible to feel like you're living a luxurious life. But you're going to have to get in the mindset of the church at Smyrna. Most of the churches that Jesus writes letters to, the seven here, they get a picture of Jesus. We're getting that. They get some evaluation of their job. They get a job review. They're going to get some of that. All right, you're going through it. You're rich. That's, and you're handling it well. We're going to talk about how in just a minute, but you're handling it well. And then almost every other one, Jesus says, good job, good job, good job, not good job. Not here. They only get positive review. He offers them not one bit of constructive feedback. They're doing it so well. They're living in that pressed place. They don't have all that they need, and they're doing it so well. This church becomes for us, if you'll let me just press it a little bit, kind of a shining example. As we're on the seas of life, looking out to say, where do we see the... This church becomes for us a shining example. It glistens, as it were, for us to look at and investigate. Now, what kinds of things were they going through? Here's what our Bible says. I know about the slander of those who say they're Jews and are not, but are of a synagogue of Satan. Now, a little historical context. Most of the early Christians were Jewish, and so most of the early churches in all the cities, even outside of Jerusalem, were started by Jewish people, because all the early Christians were, who would go to these cities, and the only thing they knew to do often was to go to the synagogue and stand in the courts of the synagogue and start talking about Jesus. They had shared history and culture and language and custom as the people who were gathering there, even though they didn't know each other. And they'd get there, and that affinity of being a select small group of people in a larger metropolitan area gave them common ground to talk about, and the conversation typically would go to Jesus quickly. So in that city of Smyrna, there were people who were part of the synagogue. They were Jewish, and here now these Christians are trying to convert people to Christianity, which I know is a big no-no you're not supposed to do in a modern age. I get it. But in Jesus' day and in the days after Jesus, that's just what Christians did because that's what Jesus told them to do. And what was happening was is this other group over here was just really angry at them and making things hard for them. And they're trying to, trying to act like a synagogue, but here Jesus says they're really not a synagogue. They're really a synagogue of Satan. That's like bad. And so I know that there are people who are slandering you. They, they say they're true Jews, but they're really not. And then he says, do not be afraid of what you are. And nobody wants to hear these words, what you're about to suffer. What, what, what if Jesus came to you like 30 minutes after you committed your life to Jesus and said, hey, hey, Bob, love you, man. Great decision today. Let's go ahead and get baptized. But just want to put something in your head. Do not be afraid. You'd be like, awesome. But then you realize you interrupted him. He's like, no, no, no. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. All right, bro, go ahead. I'll, tell you, I'll be with you at baptism. What if Jesus did something like that? That would not be an experience any of us would want. But that's exactly what Smyrna goes through. here. Jesus says, here, here I am. I'm the first and last. I see it all. So when I look at it all, here, here's the future for you. You're about to go through it. And by the way, you're already going through it. Oh, and by the way, you don't have all that you need to get it all done to get out of going through it, and you're going to go through more of it. This is not encouraging. This is not, this is not the kind of news anybody wants to have. Let's keep reading. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. Oh, this is good. Just keep, just keep bringing it. And you'll suffer persecution for 10 days. Now, this is where Revelation gets a little complicated because does 10 days mean 10 days? Because it says 10 days, right? Or does 10 days, because 10 days, I can almost hang by my fingernails for 10 days. I mean, if I had to, you know, I could, I could do something. But the problem is in the book of Revelation, numbers take special meaning. 
And so 10 days typically means there's going to be a season of completion. It ain't going to be done until it's completed. It ain't going to be a week. We're going to go well into the next. So the image of 10 days means there's going to be a, it's going to be a time that you're going to go through this. So when the early readers who understood some of this imagery because they used that kind of language often read the phrase 10 days, what they heard was, this is going to last a while. All right? Then he says, Jesus says to the church, be faithful even to the point of death, and I'll give you life as a victor's crown. You know what that victor's crown is. That's the thing that even today at the modern Olympics, on occasion, they'll put a laurel wreath on the supreme athlete of the games. That was common experience for every Roman citizen. At all the games, the victor wears the crown. And then Jesus says, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit has to say to the church. Is the one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Jesus had just said, you're going to die, but if you do this well, the second death isn't going to get you. And sometimes that language gets lost on us, so just a little context before we unpack. The second death, biblically speaking, is not when you breathe your last breath. The second death will not happen to everyone. The second death happens to people who breathe their last breath, death number one, and then go and spend eternity without God. Death number two. Jesus says, if you do this well, you may have death number one. In fact, everybody's going to have death number one. But you're not going to have death number two. So you get a big reward. That's what Jesus says. In your message notes, let me give you a few statements here. Number one. First of all, to the church at Smyrna, and honestly, for some of you, truth in advertising here, things are bad. And they're going to get worse. That's the truth. I know that's not popular. I, I know that you don't come to church to hear, hey, sorry you heard it's going through. It's probably going to get worse before it gets better. I know that. But it's just true. Anybody been married for any length of time? You know that when you first start working through some of those challenges of building a life together, two independent lives coming together, that it's not fun to be there. But sometimes the very work it's going to, that's going to be required to get you out of the thing is going to cost you more and going to be even more painful. And the only reason you would do it is because there's something to gain over here. Your kid's sick, used to at least, this metaphor holds up better, and you want to take him to the doctor, almost always it meant a shot. I mean, doctors would just shoot penicillin in all the time. Some of you old enough remember that. I just barely remember those days. Every time I went to the doctor, I got a shot. And so the only reason, you're not well anyway, the only reason you go to the doctor to get a shot, it's going to get worse, is because there's some hope over here. When Jesus writes to the church at Smyrna, and honestly to a lot of Christians today around the globe, and maybe even to some of us in this room right now, the situation you're in isn't awesome, and it isn't going to get to get better right away. So what do you do with that? What do you do if you find yourself in a bit of a Smyrna kind of reality? And I almost hesitate to say that because none of us are getting the knock at night saying, declared Caesar. We're not, that's not. None of us are getting pulled out of the street like my buddy Chris getting shot. Very few of us feel the pressure of owning a Bible and how that's illegal. We've got to keep it hidden. So I almost hate to even say that, but it's fair to say that in our own way, some of us are there. Next point. Tribulation for our faith is not something many of us have seen directly. So even some of the language here is elusive. Most of us in this room will not go to prison for our faith. I don't want to be a doomsday prophet in any way at all, but who knows what's going to happen historically if Jesus does not return for years. Who knows what will happen in our part of the world. It certainly is true in other parts. But next blank, tribulation for your faithfulness is something you will likely experience. You may not get tribulation for your faith pure and simple. You're a Christian, you can't get hired. You're a Christian, you're going to jail. You're a Christian, we're freezing your assets. That happens around the world. It may not happen to you. But almost every Christian will experience some kind of tribulation, challenge, affliction, or pressing if you try to be faithful. Not just the raw, are you a Christian, but how do you live your Christian life? If you commit to that, you are likely to experience the press, the crush, 
And when you do, it's likely you do not have all the resources to simply pull yourself up and make it go away. Not likely to happen. So here's what I'm trying to say, next blank. You will be tested. The testimony of the Smyrna church was is they were tested. And when Jesus evaluated them, they were killing it. They were literally doing the best you could do with it. But every Christian gets tested. You know this, right? I mean, when you gave your life to Jesus, maybe it wasn't explained to you. But you were encouraged, I hope, to read the Bible. And in the Bible, Jesus said to every one of his followers, in this world you will have, do you remember the next word? Trouble. Giving your life to Jesus does not elevate you to a plane where the brokenness of this world or the brokenness of other people doesn't touch you. And it doesn't elevate you to a plane where your own brokenness doesn't make difficulty for you. No, no, no. What it does is it elevates you to a place that no matter what's going on in your life, Jesus is with you. That's the difference. You don't have to go living on in a broken world alone. In fact, you get to walk through it with the guy who wired it up, set it right, and when it went bad, came back to redeem it. And in the end, is going to right every wrong. You get to walk through a broken world with that guy who saw the first and will be there at the last. You get to go through it with a guy who had the most horrific things happen to him. He was, like the Smyrna church, slandered, accused, falsely, imprisoned, trumped up charges, fake news, all of it. It happened to Jesus he gave his life. But as he reminded the Smyrna church, but I came back to life. You get to go through life with that guy. And according to the impact of this passage, this is the raw impact here, that if you understand who it is you get to do life with, almost anything you face in life is okay. Now, I'll be honest. I'm preaching that truth I ain't feeling that truth. Yet, you, I, I know you're not preachers, but do you have to ever have to preach to yourself stuff? If you don't, I want to encourage you to do it. Stuff you know to be true, but you don't feel it. I'm going to give you a simple one. When I was a teenager, I had five bucks in my pocket. Here's the truth I knew. Save the money, be better. That's the truth I knew, but it wasn't the truth I was feeling. The truth I was feeling was, I got five dollars. I'm rich, and I know today that's not rich. I get it. So for those of you that are, I imagine you have $100 in your pocket. I'm, I'm always impressed with how much money my kids have. I'm like, where did that come from? And my granddad, I'm like, God, I got to call that guy. You're, not, you're going, anyway. So imagine you got, and so you got this reality, and you know what to do, but you ain't feeling it. Truth is, is for all of us, as followers of Jesus, there are going to be moments in life when you're in a place and you know what the truth is. Stick it out. Have that conversation with my wife. Engage. Listen to her. Press through. Guard my words. Apologize. Take responsibility. You know what you need to do, but you don't feel it. Am I right? I'm the only one. You're going to let me hang out here by myself? I'm the only one? So in a moment like that, this is when you break open the book of Revelation and you turn to the chapter on Smyrna and you read and you're reminded, you're reminded that you're not going through it alone. And if you're going through it with him, the one who's the first and the last, the one who was dead but is alive, you have the ability to press through. You have the ability to press through because he's with you. You're going to be tested. Let me give you five ways that the Smyrna church was tested. They had actual tribulation. They were in, under pressure as they tried to live out their faith. Just the raw act of living out their faith created conflict for them. And in small and big ways, that will happen to you. Try to live out your faith of integrity in the marketplace, and on occasion, it isn't going to go as easy for you than if you would slide a few things here and there. That's just your faithfulness creating for you a little bit of a 
harder road to walk. Try to live out your faith where you're going to persist and have a sense of moral purity in an environment where everything other than moral purity is celebrated. You might actually find yourself ridiculed by your friends because you won't do what they do. Try to restrain from overindulgence while your friends are overindulging. Do that as a function of your faithfulness to God who gives the command to every believer, do not be drunk with wine. And it's possible just your faithfulness will get from you a little scorn from your friends. Tribulation. Number two, poverty. Here's the truth for every one of us. Being a Christian is going to cost you money. Period. Jesus was explicit on this point. You're going to have to give some of it away. You are. And as a Christian, you're going to do things different with your money than just make it about you and your own enjoyment. So I'm not sure that most of us have to experience poverty in the sense we don't know where our meal's coming from, but you might have to make decisions that don't just add to your own bottom line. Number three, they were slandered. Being a Christian means that your reputation might be destroyed and people will say things that are untrue and perhaps about you or your faith. I have an uncle right now, his favorite thing uh, to say on Facebook is you fake Christians. That's his favorite thing to say. And it hurts because I like the guy. Honestly, he's a wonderful guy. Best joke teller you ever met, honestly. I'd love to just bring him up here. we do a comedy night. You'd love him. Except he's so jaded about the faith. And so his favorite phrase is, you fake Christians. And no matter what you say, it's like he's looking for a way to prove that you're not real and authentic in your faith. Number four, suffering. Being a Christian will make your life incredibly more difficult because you can't just do what feels right. You have to think about what you're doing. You have to think about how does it honor Jesus. You literally have to ask the question on occasion, what would Jesus do? And that has to impact your actions. You're called to obedience, not just gusto. And that changes everything. And ultimately, for many Christians globally, it, to be tested literally means death. Last year, the number one most persecuted religious sect globally. Number one most persecuted sect globally. More people died out of this faith than any other faith was Christianity. Just because they won't declare in their own culture, Caesar is Lord. You will be tested. So the first part is things are bad are going to get worse, but on your blanks, here it is. Things are good and they're going to get better. It's true at the same time. This is what the Smyrna church was able to focus on. And this is what I want to call you to. I don't know what you're going through, but no matter what it is, it's not as bad as you probably think it is. Or maybe it's horrible in the physical world, but the spiritual world, if you could open your eyes to that, it begins to speak powerfully into the present world. Let me tell you when I experienced this the clearest. I hate to keep going back to this, but every once in a while, there are moments and events that happen to you that just shape you. This is one for me. Just uh, five years ago and a few weeks now, my mother passed away. It was Father's Day, and I got the news as I was coming in the back of the church building that she had just passed, it was Father's Day here. And I, I just, I had to shelve it. I just, I had to shelve it, right? I just, it had to go here. And I couldn't even talk, but I didn't say anything. Only like four people in the whole church knew. And uh, my mom and I were very close. And she was my biggest encourager. She's the one that helped me discover and discern my call. She was my confidant. My mom loved my wife as if, it, as if she were her own daughter and well, just losing her was a big deal. And I remember sitting there um, in the weeks leading up to her passing and planning her funeral with her. What, all right, what song do you want to hear? All right, who do you want to do it? Who do you want? Well, that, that'll mess with your head a little bit, but it's a gift. So we, we, we did it. We did it. And then I remember sitting at the funeral thinking, this sucks. I hate this. I give just about anything to change this. And I was just there. Now, I knew more than anybody else what was coming up next in the service because literally I wrote it down as my mom told me what she wanted. That was just the kind of person she was. So we get into this song, and actually Will and the band came down, and they, they did the service for my mom six hours from here. And 
like just eternal gratitude for all those people. And then several people in the congregation came down and were there. And I'm sitting there, and I'm looking at my mom's church, and it's just full, packed, hundreds and hundreds of people. And then there's some Four Corners people. And we go into this song that's just meaningful to my mom. A song you wouldn't even know. It's from the old hymnal that used to be in our church. And it's the old Southern Gospel 4-4 on the floor. And that means something, by the way. And um, and so we're singing it in four-part harmony. And uh, we get to the chorus. And um, I remember thinking, this sucks. And this is beautiful. And I have the unique privilege of having both sorrow, but not sorrow without hope. I don't know what you're going through. But let me tell you that it's good and it's going to get better. And I'm going to give you the the quick reasons why. First reason is Jesus has the last word. The last person to speak that's going to declare the ultimate truth about every situation is Jesus. And ultimately, it's only his word that's going to matter. It's good and it's going to get better because Jesus is alive. And I mean literally, he's no longer dead and if you're his child, he's with you. It's good and it's going to get better because you are rich, maybe not with everything you need to pull yourself up by yourself, but you are rich with the riches of Christ. It's good and it's going to get better because you will receive from Jesus a crown of life. And it's good and it's going to get better because you will not be hurt by the second death. You're going to spend eternity with him. And when the church at Smyrna wrote that, somehow these words, that if Jesus is with us, that's really all we need, got down deep in their soul. And for the next 200 years, they went through pain and persecution. Their leader stands at a stake and says, for 86 years, he has never failed me. How could I blaspheme my king? And he gave it up. And I want to tell you something. I don't know how profound it sounds to you yet, but think on this. If you will get a strong and profound picture of Jesus and the fact that he is with you, no matter what you're going through, no matter whether you can control it or not, you will be fine. You will. You will be fine. Why don't you grab out your Connect card? And let's take a few steps, all right? Next step A for us every week says that today I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. I'd like to give you a chance right now to trust the one who is the first and the last. The Bible says that to do that, you acknowledge you're a sinner and cannot save yourself, that you're poor that way, but that he is rich, and he will make the great riches of the grace of God available to you, and his death and resurrection secures it. Take the pen, check next step A. It says, today I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord, and in a moment pray and ask God to do just that. I'll lead you in it. Next step B, today I'm choosing to be baptized. I'm choosing to be baptized. Uh, We have a big baptism coming up on August 5th. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. If you have questions about it or want to be baptized, go ahead and check the box. I'm so looking forward to this. You don't want to miss that day. One service, 10 o'clock, ending in big baptisms outside. You're going to just, it's going to be great. All right, next step C. Just as acknowledgement, here it says, I struggle with fear. Pray with me to learn to trust God in it. This morning at church, they were afraid, of course, but they learned somehow to trust God in the middle of it. When you read the words, Jesus says, don't be afraid. I'm going to be with you. So if that's you, whatever it is, for what, you can tell me the reason in the notes or not, but I'd like to pray with you about it. Just check the box and let's declare that, yeah, that's where we are. But God is bigger than anything I'm afraid of. Next step, D. Who would say that you would join with me and you'd pray for our church uh, and that your life, both our church and your life, would have the testimony of Smyrna, that is, that we'd be faithful against any obstacle, that we'd stand the test, that tribulation wouldn't be our undoing, it would be our purifying, and it would shape and mold our faith. Check that and pray with us, and then we'll send you a few sentences on that this week. And the next step, E, relative to the transition we're going through, would you pray for our church, our kids team, our leaders, past and present? I'm really excited to talk with you about the plans we're headed towards as those get formulated. But go ahead and just make that a matter of prayer. I want to remind you that not only individually do you go with Jesus, but he goes with his church, and he loves it more than any of us here. So would you set your Connect card aside? Would you prepare to give 
your gifts. If you call this church home, it's your opportunity to give back financially to support the ministry of this church. And I want to show you just real quickly three quick pictures and tell you how powerful it is when you give something like dollars and pennies to make something happen. Up on the screen, I believe, is a picture of a lady that on the 29th, that weekend, we're going to celebrate. Uh, Many of you know her. If you're new, you don't. This is Miss Judy Heron, the beloved wife of Bubba for a number of years. And she showed up at our church on the very first Sunday and began to serve in kids' ministry. She gave incredible effort. I've never seen anybody work as hard or as faithful for the kids' ministry here. Dear friend to me, the Lord took her on. I thought too quickly, but he knows best. And many of you gave money in her name, in her honor for the kids' ministry. And over the last several months, we've been spending a lot, that money and other money to make the construction over here happen for our kids' ministry. And on the 29th, not in a big way, because that'd be embarrassing to Judy. She wouldn't like that. In fact, she wouldn't like this at all. But she can complain to me when I get to heaven with her, all right? On the 29th, we're going to celebrate her legacy. We're going to dedicate the space in her name and honor for the foundational work she's done. Now the Lord's with Bubba. He's met a wonderful lady that's just lit up his life and we're so happy that God works on all fronts. But the Bible talks about giving honor where honor is due. And on that day, while we don't do this a lot around here, we're gonna celebrate Jesus and his work through her. And we're gonna put a little plaque on the wall and every time you walk by it, I wanted you to know about it. So I don't want you to miss And I want you to understand that when you give pennies and dollars, you help things like our kids' ministry happen. And I'm very, very grateful for it. Can we bow and pray about our next steps? Father, I want to thank you that you are always with us. We're never alone. No matter what we go through, you're there. And you love us. I pray, Father, that like the church at Smyrna, Just the simple realization that you're with us would give us comfort and peace. No matter what our it is, no matter what we're going through. Father, I pray that you would take our next steps and our offering that we're about to give and you would multiply the impact, our steps in our lives, the offering for your kingdom. We want to honor you. We want our testing to become our testimony. Do what you're doing in our lives, Father. Help us to have our confidence in you. I pray for those men and women that are declaring, Jesus, wash away my sins. I trust your work on the cross. I believe in the empty tomb. And I trust in you alone for my salvation. We give it to you. We pray it all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen and amen.